Isn't that cool? I love our creative communications team, don't you? I want to welcome everyone that have come to be a part of this service today, all of you that are watching online, all of you on all of our campuses that are joining us in person. I'm so grateful for you and so thankful for you. Thank you for coming to be a part of this service today. In case you haven't heard, the Houston Astros are back into the World Series. I just wanted to say... They're going to be playing the Atlanta Braves. And I've got a feeling that this next week is going to be a whole lot of fun. And I just thought I should bring it up to our church. Now, it may be that uh, you heard that two and a half weeks ago, Kathy and I came down with COVID. Honestly, we weren't surprised because we're around so many people. We just thought there's going to be a day it's going to come. And we really weren't all that worried about it. But I want to say thank you so much for praying for us. We felt your prayers and we knew you were praying. So many people reached out to us, but even if someone didn't, we, I know this church, we know this church and we knew you were praying for us and we were so grateful. And I'm telling you that God came through for us in a great, great way. We had a very mild case of COVID and with by the time we got to the end of the quarantine time, I took my test, I was negative, and I came right back to work. I was so excited to get back, get going, and it has been a great week. Now, what I have heard over the, the months about COVID, those of the, who have gotten COVID, they said the last thing that comes back for you is your energy. And I'm here to tell you that's really true. And if you're going to pray for anything for Kathy and I, if God brings you, uh, us to your heart as you're praying, pray for the energy to come back, the stamina to come back. And for me today, I'm preaching three services today, and I could sure use a supernatural infusion of the power of God in my life. And if you would remember me in prayer, I'd so appreciate that you do. Today, we're beginning a new series entitled Back to the Future. And I think it's pretty obvious that we lifted that title out of the movie series. So I want to ask you, how many of you have seen the first movie of Back to the Future? Oh, my soul, look at this. I, it's amazing. Did you know that when I checked on that, 
were shocked. The first movie came out 35 years ago. So how old were you 35 years ago? Some of you didn't exist. <laughs> you weren't even a thought, but here you are. And many of you have watched the movie. I've heard so many people that are young that have watched the movie simply because it is a pretty cool, entertaining movie. And the, the core of that movie is about one young man, 17 years old, called Marty McFly. Marty McFly, isn't that an interesting name? And here's a picture of Marty. It's Michael J. Fox playing that role. Now, Marty McFly is a 17-year-old who is frustrated with his parents. So that's not abnormal at all, I don't think, is it? 17 years old, frustrated with his parents, frustrated with his whole family. And on top of that, though, he has no sense of purpose. He has no sense of direction at all in his life. He has no sense of future. And through a total accident, he is transported back in time through a time machine that has been implanted in a DeLorean. This is a picture of a DeLorean. And it has been implanted in that DeLorean. He gets in it, he takes off, he's trying to escape uh, uh, something that is happening in his life, but he didn't realize. He then zooms back in time. He goes back to the very time in which his parents were 17 years of age. Back to the very time in which he now sees them in a whole different light. He sees the struggles that they were going through, the, the, the weaknesses and difficulties they had to overcome and how well they overcame them. He sees how their lives actually turn out and all the strength and the, 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 the determination that his parents had lived through to become who they became. And he, his whole attitude, his whole disposition toward his parents totally changes. He begins to admire his parents and how all of those things transpired. And more than that, he begins to understand life in a new way. He begins to understand purpose and, and, and future. And it's there that he then is now ready to go back to the future. Thus the title of the movie. So why is this series called that? A few months ago, and I was, so I was praying about where I felt God was leading us to come, beginning today and over the next five weeks, as I was praying about what I was feeling in my heart that God wanted me to do, I actually, in my prayer, said, God, what I need to do is we need to somehow get in a time machine and go back to the first century, back to the first church, and rediscover where we came from, and we rediscover who we are and what you have called us to accomplish. Well, I was headed into a, a meeting with our creative team and and it was there that time machine thing and suddenly out of my mouth came back to the future and we locked onto this and here we are. You see, the problem that we face is the same problem every other church in the world faces. 20 months ago, we were handed an unprecedented time for us 
We walked into a worldwide pandemic. We walked into a, a moment in time in which none of us were prepared for it. None of us had any training in this. All of a sudden we were faced with making decisions and flying by the seat of our pants. And that's really what happened. During this time, every church in the world began to go into crisis management, began to, to, to go into survival mode, and that was us as well. I had one abiding thought that was in my mind as we began to go through this pandemic, and I realized we're not coming out of this in just a few weeks like I had originally thought. My thought was, I am the pastor of this church. I have got to do everything I can do to get as many of our members through this time and to the other side. I've got to make decisions that keep people safe. I've got to make decisions that help us get to the other side. And as our leadership team came together, that was the thought that caused us to make so many decisions. We wanted to get everybody to the other side. The truth is, we were in survival mode. It wasn't that Sugar Creek only cared about itself. It wasn't that we were only thinking about ourselves. I mean, we began to, to give food, tons and tons and tons of food. It was shocking how much food began to come in to go to Second Mile Mission Center so that people that were without jobs and without any income and, and without food would have food. And we wanted to be in the middle of that, and we were. It was so much like Sugar Creek Baptist Church to watch what this church did in reaching out to care for other people. But the truth is, just like every other church in the world, we were trying to get to the other side. And I don't fault anybody for that. And I don't fault us. But here's what I do know. That when a church finds itself in being an inwardly focused church, we better get out of it as fast as we can because inwardly focused churches always shrivel up and die. But churches that are outwardly focused are always blessed by God. If there has been one common denominator, one thread through the entire history of Sugar Creek for these 45 plus years, through four pastors, if there is one thread that is seen throughout all of this time, is that this church has been always outwardly focused. This church has always had an attitude that our goal is to reach as many people for the gospel of Jesus Christ as we can. Reach people near us, reach people around the world. And that has been the heart and the focus of Sugar Creek Baptist Church. For the next five weeks, I am wanting us to sort of get in a time machine and go back to first century and see in a fresh new way who the first church was, what their heart was, what their promises that God had given them, what their confidences were. And go back to the book of Acts and the first two chapters for five weeks, Acts one and two, and rediscover who we are and what God has set before us to be the future of this church. When someone gives you a promise 
And that person has the ability and the will to fulfill the promise they give you. That person has given you a, a real treasure. They have allowed a predictable in the midst of an unpredictable world. Something that you can count on, something that you know will come, even though the rest of the atmosphere around you is so unpredictable. The Bible has given us so many, God has given us so many promises individually, so many promises that we can count on, that we can grab hold of, that we can base our life, but not just individually, but as a church. God has given us as a church several promises that he has made to us. They are the predictable in now a very unpredictable world. In the book of Acts chapter one, Jesus gives to us two key promises. And as we begin this journey of going back to that first century church, seeing who they were, what they were about, who we are and who, what we're to be about, I want us as we begin Acts chapter one to see two great promises that Jesus gave to his followers and those promises are for us as well. Promise number one is simply this, that Jesus will be with his church every step of the way. When Acts chapter one opens up, we immediately see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has already happened. He's already raised from the dead. He has already appeared to his disciples. But it's in Acts chapter one, verse three, we discover something that nowhere else in the Bible does it tell us. We discover that Jesus began to appear to his disciples over a span of 40 days. Listen to what it says in verse three of Acts chapter one. After Jesus' suffering, meaning his crucifixion, he showed himself to these men, meaning these disciples, these followers. There were more than just the 12, 11 disciples left. There were a host of other people that were with him that were followers of Christ. And he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke of the kingdom of God. Why 40 days? Why not four minutes? Why not appear to them one time for four minutes? Here he is, you see him, he's alive. Why not four minutes? Why not four hours? Why not four days? Why 40 days? When Jesus ascended back to heaven, he wanted to make sure that there was never a moment that would ever come in those who had been with him, that they would ever doubt that Jesus had resurrected from the grave. Four minutes, and it may be that over time, over a year, and especially when hard times began to hit these followers of Christ, that they would think back, well, did we really see him or was that an hallucination? Or was that just a mirage? Are we really sure that we saw him alive? It would only have been for four minutes. But Jesus wanted to make sure that these followers of him never, ever doubted again about the validity of the resurrection of Christ. Did you know that almost every one of these apostles, uh, all but one, die martyrs' death? 
And every single one of them that went to their death as a martyr went to their death only for one reason, that they would not deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But they couldn't deny it. We have been with him for 40 days. We have heard all of his teachings of the kingdom of God all over again. There is no doubt about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is the core of the Christian faith. It's the foundation of our church. If you don't get that right, everything else you get is gonna be wrong because it is the one truth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the one truth that changed everything. The Bible itself says that if Jesus has not been risen, nothing else we have to say to you is true. All of it hangs on one event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I would hope that you would buy two books and I don't have any stock in books. So I'm not, this isn't self for my own self benefit. I wish there were two books in your personal library that you would buy, that you would read. And then when there's a member of your family that tells you, well, I don't even know that it's true. I don't even know that Christianity is right. I, I don't even know these things that we say, if it's really correct to give them one of these books. The two books I have in mind is first called The Case for Christ uh, by Lee Strobel. Uh, the second book is called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus by Gary Habermas. These two men are brilliant men. These two men were atheists. Both of these men did not believe in anything, any religion whatsoever, and most assuredly not in the resurrection of Christ. And both of them did not know that the other was doing exactly the same thing that they were doing. But both of them for their own unique purposes had made the decision that in order to disprove Christianity, and to rescue a member of my family or somebody else in my life, I have to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Both of them made the decision and they did it because they knew that the foundation stone of Christianity was the resurrection. This is just a hoax. This is just people believing in something that can't even make sense and that didn't, certainly didn't happen. And so both of these men went to the task of disproving the resurrection. You say, how do you even go about such a thing? They took all the books that, that talked about the, the, uh, the arguments for and the arguments against, and they went down the trail of every one of those arguments for and against. Both of them in their own acknowledgement used the scientific method of discovery. They went through every single for and against to, to show that the, the argument against the resurrection was superior to the argument for. And in the process of doing that and keeping records of everything they did and who they talked to and what they discovered and all of that, both these men independently came to the realization that what I thought was a hoax, what I thought was just a made up myth has more evidence for, dramatically more for, than any evidence against. And both of these men accepted Jesus Christ as their savior. 
They went from being atheists to Christ followers and they took all of the records of their search and brought it together in their own unique books. The case for Christ and the case for the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm telling you, if you'll ever read one of them or both, you'll never doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ again. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ demonstrated that everything he said was true about God, about himself, about us, about salvation. It is the cornerstone of the church. Now, after 40 days, Jesus with his disciples, Jesus went through all the things he had taught for three and a half years, but now he had ears that would hear. Now he had eyes that were open. Now they listened and they absorbed what he taught them about the kingdom of God. And one of the things that he taught them was that after he would ascend back to heaven, I'm only here for a short time, I'm only here for 40 days, but after I ascend back to heaven, God, the Holy Spirit, will come and indwell you. Listen to what he says in Acts chapter one, verse five. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This was not a new teaching of Jesus before he was crucified, as he was talking to his disciples. In John chapter, chapters 14 to 16, he talks about the Holy Spirit of God coming. In John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Circle the word forever. This is the key word. The Holy Spirit will come and never leave you. He will always be with you. The spirit of truth. The world can't accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be at the coming of the Holy Spirit, he will be in you. And as though that wouldn't be enough somehow, just before Jesus ascended back to heaven, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20, and be assured of this, that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now think about this, Jesus physically for 40 days, making sure they understood everything now with eyes open. Second of all, the Holy Spirit is coming. A few days after I leave, he will come and baptize you. He will come and indwell your life forever. And I will be with you to the end of the age. Why this? Why was this so important, this promise so important? Because the church of Jesus Christ will always be assaulted and always be opposed by the world. We have to know when we're in the middle of the struggle, when we're in the middle of the difficulty, we have to know, oh God, you're with me. You have not abandoned us. You have not somehow left us. And now we've been left to our own. Oh no, God is saying to, to you, to me, to us as Sugar Creek Baptist Church, I'm with you. I am right here. Jesus is in our midst. The Holy Spirit of God has come to dwell in us. When our lives are struggling, when we're going through difficulty, when we think we can't get to the other side, oh, we can because God 
is with us. Christ is with us. The Holy Spirit of God is with us. He will never let us down. He will always have our backside. And he will always be in our midst. There is something else attached to this that you gotta grab hold of. It's got to be a part of this whole idea. And it's simply this, that Jesus is the originator of the church, not the disciples. The church is not a man-made thing. The church is not something that people created later. Jesus is the originator and the author of the church. It was my generation as I was growing up that for at least the best I know in history was the generation to say, I don't want to be a part of the organized church. I, I don't want to be a part of some man-made religion. And in my generation, that's what everybody was saying. I would hear it all the time. But what we didn't know at that time, we didn't understand, but then came to understand the, the, the Christianity's not some organized religion. It's not some institutionalized church. The church author and originator is Jesus, not people. There was a moment that Jesus was with his disciples and he, he said to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus then said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, and I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock. Meaning on this confession of faith, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. On this confession, I will build my church. Listen to what Jesus is saying. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will build my church. Mark Hartman is not the head of Sugar Creek. I'm an under shepherd. The head of Sugar Creek Baptist Church is Jesus Christ. He is the originator of this church. He is the director of this church. He is the leader of us. And he is the head. It's his church and we're to follow him. It is Jesus, the head of our church, who said to us, or at least inspired the words to be said, do not forsake the assembling of yourself together as is the manner of some. But be together, stay together. Encourage one another and all the more that you see the end coming. First Peter chapter one tells us, don't be surprised when the world opposes you. Jesus said that the world system will always be against the church. Jesus said that the world system of beliefs will always be opposed to the truth of God's word and always be opposed to the people of God. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples? The world hates me. It hates me because I have shown it its sin and it will hate you because you follow me. When we begin to see ourselves picking up the philosophy of the world, when we begin to see ourselves picking up the morals of the world, 
Oh, it should be a warning sign to us because the world is always going in one direction and Jesus is always going the other. The first great promise of Acts, the first great promise of this church that Jesus is bringing together is the abiding word, I will be with you every step of the way. I will be your rock. I will be your fortress. I will be your defender. I will be your provider. And I'm here to tell us, remind us today at Sugar Creek Baptist Church, Jesus Christ is here. The Holy Spirit of God is leading us and directing our path. It is his promise to have our back no matter what we do and where we go, as long as we're following him. There's a second promise that Jesus gave to this early church. And the second promise was simply this, as the world reaches its end, Jesus will come back for his church. He'll come back for us. In Acts chapter one, verses six to 11, Jesus has come to the end of those 40 days. And he's gathering his disciples together for the last time, and they knew it was. He'd already told them, this is when it's going to happen. And they arrived at that point, and they gathered on the Mount of Olives, the scripture says. I'm not sure how many were there. There is a passage of scripture in 1 Corinthians 15 that says that up to 500 people had seen Jesus alive. And so is the 500 there at the Mount of Olives. It doesn't actually say that. What we do know is that it's not just 11 disciples that are left. There were at least 120 that were deeply devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And maybe it was all of the 120, but however many they gathered on that day on the Mount of Olives to say goodbye to Jesus and wouldn't see him again until heaven. I just think about that moment. I, I think about the lump that had to be in their throat. And it says, and so when they met together. So when they met together, they asked him one last question. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What were, they, what were they asking? You see, they knew that the Old Testament talks about a day in which a kingdom on the earth will take place. And they, they always knew that Israel somehow would be elevated again at that moment. And so is this the time? saying, is this the time you're going to destroy Rome, the Roman Empire, and you're going to seat Israel again as sort of the kingdom on the earth? Is this, is this the time? It's interesting to me what Jesus said and didn't say. I, I would have thought if they had it all wrong, Jesus would say to them, you know, you, you got it all wrong. But it's not what he said. Listen to what he said. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. What is he saying? This isn't the moment. There's a lot of work to be done before I come back. And you won't know when it is I'll come back. You won't know when it is that, that what you're talking about will, be, will happen on this earth. But here's what I'm telling you there is a task for you to accomplish. 
and I'm about to give you what is called the Great Commission. Listen to what then happens in verse nine. After Jesus said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid them from their sight. This verse is not saying that all of a sudden the cloud picked up Jesus and, and took him off. That's not what the verse is saying. The verse is saying that suddenly Jesus begins to rise. And he goes through a cloud and now they can't see him because he went through a cloud. What is it that caused him to rise? When I read this verse of scripture, I think of what happened in the Old Testament. Do you remember the story of this flaming chariot that comes out of nowhere, it seems, but uh, Elijah knows it's coming because God has told him, and this flaming chariot comes and whisks Elijah away, and Elijah doesn't die. He goes right to heaven. Well, I'm here to tell you that chariots don't fly, and they're not flaming. So what is this? The best I know, it's the Shekinah glory of God that is coming and, and whisks him away as though it was a flaming chariot. So who is this, what is this that lifts Jesus up? This word in the Greek is, uh, that is translated, he was taken up, is the Greek word hupalabano, which means to take from underneath. Something, some force, the Shekinah glory of God lifted Jesus up and whisked him back to heaven. And then notice what happens. Verse 10, they were looking intently up into the sky. And as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. God gives us the promise, the second promise, I'm coming back. I'm coming back for you. When I read this passage and I think about the second coming of Jesus and the promise of that second coming, there is a passage of scripture that I love with all my heart. In Ephesians, I have a deep devotion to the book of Ephesians. I love this book. And in Ephesians chapter one, verses nine and 10, listen to how he puts it. God has told us his secret reason for sending Christ, a plan he decided on in mercy long ago. And this was his purpose, that when the time is ripe, he will gather us together from wherever we are in heaven and on earth to be with him in Christ forever. There is a promise that God makes to his church. You do what I tell you to do. You be a part of what my great commission is, but I want you to know that there is an end game to this world. And there is a day my son is coming back and he is coming for you. Whether it's those who are already in heaven, he brings those with him, the scripture says, are those who are still on earth. He sweeps us up with the Shekinah glory of God, just like he did Jesus, and we go flying into the air. Oh, I want to be in the middle of that moment. Wouldn't you love to all of a sudden, you have been changed into your glorified body and you are swept up and you are flying, man. You are flying 
into the very presence of Jesus Christ. He gives us a promise. I'm coming back for you. Last spring, we went through a series about the second coming of Christ. If you weren't here, I wish you'd get, go online and, and listen to the messages. And we talked about what the Bible teaches about the return of Jesus Christ. And one of the messages was from Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus explains the way the world will be just as he comes. Oh. You go through what Jesus taught about the signs of the times, of the way the world will be as he comes back, and there is this feeling, this sense of the whole world is on fire. Everything is coming apart at the seams. And I gotta be honest with you. I have felt for the last few years that it's all coming apart in the world and in our country. And it's all, there's a sense of burning that it's just all on fire. Maybe you haven't felt that way, but I've felt that way. And I've, I have sort of felt the, what I felt when I, in the latter part of the 60s and early part of the 70s, and in which the same feeling was there. It was all the demonstrations of the war in Vietnam and all the, 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 the protests on all the college campuses and all the streets, and they were burning down buildings and stores and killing people. It was the, I couldn't believe what was happening before my very eyes in that period of time with all the war in Vietnam and all the protests and all the drug culture and every, all the immorality, and it just felt like that the world was on fire, that the country was on fire. I've never felt that way since until now. In the last few years, it just seems like everything's coming apart. The Bible says that in the last days, it gives the description about exactly how we're living right now and what it will be like when he comes back. As the people of God, we can't withdraw from the world. We need to be the best citizens that we can be for our country and for our state and locally. We need to be involved and connected. We cannot disconnect. But all the while that we go through these days, it means that our hope is in the plan of God, that we serve a God that is still on his throne, that our hope is not in this broken world system, but our hope is in God. And we look to him as our rescue. This is what I know, I know that my God reigns and that he has a plan and that Part of that plan is that in the right time that Jesus will come back for us. And I am looking for the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus made the statement to his, his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And I am looking for that day. He has made our church two great promises. He has said to us, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'll be the head of this church. I will lead you and I'll direct you and I'll empower you. I'll be the rock of Sugar Creek Baptist Church. I'll be the mighty fortress. And then when God's plan is done, I'll be coming back for you and I'll be bringing you home. And I look for those two promises today. And I encourage you, take those two promises to heart. Our job is not to be lazy. Our, our job is to do our best. Our job is to pour our heart and trust to the God who is on his throne and to follow him with all of our heart. Let's pray. Father, I pray today for those who are listening online and those on all of the campuses that are listening today. Oh God, would you use this message, the truths that you gave to us as we go back in time to first century and we see again what Jesus said to the hearts of those who were his followers. I am never going to forsake you. I will be with you every step of the way. Now you do what I tell you to do. And in the right moment, at the right time, at God's time, in his plan, I'll be back to bring you home. Oh God, I pray you would move in hearts today that are listening on every campus and online. And for those who have never received Jesus Christ as Savior, that this would be the day of salvation. That this would be the day that they would say yes to you. Move in our hearts to follow you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.